0: We continue in our study, Heaven is Our Eternal Home, and we're looking in this particular area of focus on the return, resurrection, and judgment. I'm going to draw from two primary passages tonight, one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and then the other in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, By way of review, so far in this series, we have covered eternity past and the heavens, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, the body and soul and how God has created us in his image, but he's put us in these human bodies that he's given us to live on this earth and to honor and glorify him. We've also looked at what happens at death for believers and the hope that we have, the assurance that we have that this life is not all that there is. And then last, we considered the characteristics of the present heaven. What is heaven like now? now? The present heaven is a place, it's a place that is in the presence of God, and it is a place of praise and purpose in the presence of God. Now, as we go a little bit deeper into this uh, in the particular focus before us, we're thinking within the framework of eschatology. And I want to say some things. That are somewhat introductory and they're not directly on the subject at hand tonight, but they help us to have an understanding of how these pieces fit in. Eschatology is the field of study in Christian theology that is basically the study of last things. It focuses on the return of Jesus in the future, uh, the resurrection, uh, judgment that is to come, and also eternity. And upon the basics, there is widespread agreement. But when it comes to the specifics, uh, there has been a diversity of thought even since the early centuries of the church. And I want to share what our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has to say in Article 10 of The Last Things. And you can go back and read this in its entirety on your own. Uh, we have access to this on our website, and it's easy to find otherwise. But the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 Uh, which we ascribe to as our statement of faith, in Article 10 on Last Things says this, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, when we think about last things, there are three general systems that are related to eschatology that are most prominent both historically and today. And they are amillennialism, postmillennialism and premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Each has a prefix attached to the word millennium, and each view is connected to how you translate and interpret Revelation 20 and the first 10 verses, and particularly the timing of the return of Jesus in reference to the 1,000 years that are mentioned. So let me give you just some very basics at the, at the risk of overgeneralizing what these particular thought processes are. And if you want to go back and read on it more later, you can. First is amillennialism. The ah means no, but that's really not the best way to describe it the position indicates more of a realized millennium, meaning that we are currently in the millennium. They focus on a heavenly reign and they believe that Jesus will return after this. So basically the idea is that we're living in the millennium now. Augustine in the early church held to that, as did Calvin and Luther and other uh, Protestants. Uh, Even today, the, the I shouldn't say other Protestants, but in addition to many Protestants in those time frames, held to that. Uh, And today, Protestants would uh, hold to that in some regard as well. I would say that this is probably the second most prominent view, Um, and I'll tell you which one is the most prominent here in just a moment, but the least prominent is postmillennialism, at least today. That's where there's an expectation of the return of Jesus after a millennial period so if we hold that revelation 20 is in fact going to be a 1000 year actual uh, millennial reign of jesus then the idea of the post millennial would be that when jesus returns there will be a general resurrection of the righteous and that will be followed uh, by the resurrection of the wicked and then a general judgment And it has more to do with the timing of his return. Premillennialism is the predominant view. It was in the 20th century. It also is, I think, uh, at least within our context, in the 21st century. And the expectation of a premillennial view is that Jesus will return before the millennium. Premillennialism states that after the second coming, Jesus will reign for 1,000 years on earth before the final consummation of all things. Dispensational premillennialism arose as a more prominent system in the 20th century, I believe developed by John Nelson Darby uh, in the 19th century. And what it does is it divides biblical history into a series of ages or dispensations. That would be within the system of premillennialism. There's also historic premillennialism, which holds to a very similar framework, with some of the differences, particularly being the focus on the timing of a rapture relative to the tribulation. Is the second coming a unified coming, or is there a secret rapture prior to a defined tribulation period followed by a second coming? after that tribulation period, and then leading into the millennial period. And as I said, premillennialism is by far the dominant view in evangelical thought, um, but the timing of the particular events is not always as consistent among those who hold to a premillennial view. Now, I say all that to say this. There are non-negotiable essentials to the whole deal. That if we want to say we are holding to the Bible, that our beliefs are consistent uh, with what the scripture says, these are the non-negotiables. First of all, the return of Jesus is a future reality. It's going to happen. And that return of Jesus is going to be visible. It's going to be physical. It's going to be just as they saw him ascend back into heaven they're going to see him coming again. Every eye will see him. And then the resurrection of both believers and unbelievers is a reality. This is non-negotiable. The resurrection of believers, I believe, is going to take place prior to the millennium, and the resurrection of unbelievers will take place after the millennium. Now, that is not a final once-and-for-all statement, because you've got to determine what happens to the people Who live within the millennium, uh, and uh, is there death within that time period? And there's some other questions that I'll address later on that I don't want to get into tonight so I don't confuse the subject. But the return of Jesus is a reality. The resurrection of both believers and unbelievers is a reality. And the judgment of both believers and unbelievers is a reality. The judgment seat of Christ for believers. I believe, will take place before the millennium when we have met the Lord, and the great white throne judgment will take place after the millennium before the eternal state. So those are the major judgments, although there are other things spoken of in Scripture, uh, like the judgment of the nations, for example, and some other nuances to the judgment overall. But to keep it as simple as possible, Believers are going to be judged uh, before the millennium and unbelievers after. Now, for the text at hand tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 20, and I'm going to go through verse 28. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be in all. So here's the simple framework that we are Launching from uh, as we move forward in the remainder of the study tonight. There will be a return of Jesus. His coming is certain. There is going to be a resurrection of believers, which is our concern tonight. And that is going to be before the millennial reign. There is going to be a judgment of believers. I think that's also going to be before the millennial reign. So we're not thinking about every possibility of the resurrection and the judgment and everything that goes along with it. We're narrowing our focus in these few minutes that we have together on the fact that Jesus is coming again. There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous, and there's going to be a judgment of the righteous And we'll talk about what that's for. So let's start with the return of Jesus that we just read in part about here uh, after the verses that are well known to us, uh, focusing on the resurrection in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, leading up to these verses, Paul demonstrated beyond all doubt from a spiritually thinking person at least uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. So when he states plainly in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, he is reiterating what he's already built his case on in verse 1 through verse 19. Jesus is spoken of here as the first fruits of our resurrection. In the Old Testament, you remember the offering of first fruits. Uh, brought a sheaf of grain to represent the rest of the harvest. The resurrection of Jesus in that regard both represents our own resurrection and anticipates our resurrection. Now you'll note here if you know your Bible that there's a parallel between these verses that we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5. That parallel is the comparison between Adam and Christ. And he lays this out again. Remember that was Paul who wrote Romans chapter 5 as well. And he says here in verse 23 at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, Jesus came to earth the first time, remember, as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection All of it pointed to who he was as the Messiah. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in humble circumstances, and he came to be the suffering servant. He was headed for the cross from the moment he arrived. And when Jesus ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, the angel said to the disciples, Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So they were saying to the disciples, Look, you just saw him go. Why are you still standing there gazing? Because he's coming again. So when Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15, at his coming, that's what he's pointing toward. And while Jesus came in humility the first time with his focus on the cross as the suffering servant, Jesus will return as a conquering king with the armies of heaven at his side. Now I want to read a couple of passages, one as a prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah, the second uh, in Matthew chapter 24. Zechariah 14 and verse 4 says, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, That lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. That is a prophecy of the return of Jesus. Now Matthew chapter 24 beginning in verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky To the other. Zechariah prophesying the return of Jesus. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse giving us insight into what should be expected. And then the return of Jesus is spoken of in greatest detail in Revelation 19. I begin reading in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. Revelation 19 and verse 13, he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And verse 16 says, And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. The return of Jesus Christ is as certain, if not more certain, than the fact that I am standing before you in this moment. The Bible says, prophesies it and then reiterates it and then anticipates it and someday we're going to realize it when it happens and jesus returns just as he promised he would now we shift focus to the resurrection of believers the resurrection of the human body from the grave is clearly taught in the Bible. Job was resolved in his belief in the resurrection of the body and also a future life beyond the grave. In Job 19 in verse 25 and 26, he said, it says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust, and even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Jesus himself taught that all who die will be raised from the dead in the future. And here's what he said in the Gospel of John chapter 5 and verse 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. The resurrection of believers includes altogether those who came up out of the graves When Jesus was crucified, believers of all the ages upon the return of Jesus, ultimately those who will be killed in the tribulation, those who I think will live and die in the millennium as believers who are not yet in their glorified bodies, and then the final resurrection of unbelievers, as I've already mentioned tonight, will take place at the end of the millennium before the great white throne judgment that will be for unbelievers. Now, this is the part that applies to us as believers. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51 says this, Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. And then 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now obviously, we're not going to receive our glorified bodies until the final resurrection. I made the case uh, in a previous part of this study that I believe that it's a good possibility that we're going to have uh, some semblance of a temporary body, but I wouldn't be dogmatic about it because the scripture is not dogmatic about it. But what I do know is that we will retain the essence of who we are, who God created us to be in his image, and we will retain that for all of eternity. And whether it's in a spiritual state while we await our glorified bodies, or if it's in a state of a temporary heavenly uh, Body that we will reside in, I don't know, Uh, but either way, we'll be in the presence of the Lord, and we won't be all that concerned about it. So that's the resurrection of believers. We actually spent a good bit of time of this already um, as we built up uh, to this particular focus. Now, for the bulk of our time remaining uh, tonight, I want to talk about the judgment seat of Christ, because if we're thinking about dying in the future and the reality of the return of Jesus and the resurrection and then ultimately our own accountability before the throne of God, that it's important that we understand what the scripture has to say about it. Uh, I'm going to read Romans chapter 14 first and begin in verse 10, and then I'm going to move to the Second Corinthians 5 passage that I've uh, put before you tonight. Romans chapter 14 verse 10 says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And now 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The word that is used is the bema seat. Uh, meaning uh, something that is similar to what took place in ancient Greece when they would use an elevated platform that was an orator's platform uh, of sorts. And it was a tribunal uh, from which the orators would address the citizens as well as uh, the courts of law. It was also a place of judgment being the extension of the raised seat of the judge. And that's specifically how it's used here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you don't hear anything else I've got to say tonight about the judgment seat of Christ, I want you to hear this part most clearly, particularly as we're thinking about uh, the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. The judgment seat of Christ does not determine our salvation. I think that's so important, so I'm just going to say it again. The judgment seat of Christ does not determine our salvation. Our salvation was determined by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. All of our sins are forgiven through repentance and faith in him. We will never be condemned for our sins because we are saved solely by the grace of God. When we stand in the presence of God, the only reason that we will stand there to begin with is because we have been declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 10 and verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18 says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. If we were to hold to the position." that the judgment seat of Christ is to make the determination for our salvation, then what we would be saying, in effect, is that salvation is not of grace, that the cross of Jesus Christ was not enough, and that more was needed for us to be acceptable in the presence of God. And that would be what Paul refers to as another gospel in Galatians chapter 1. And he says, if anybody were to come to you with another gospel, even if angels were to come to you with another gospel, let him be accursed because there's only one gospel. Otherwise, it wouldn't be gospel good news to begin with. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, each of us will give an account of ourselves and how we've lived our lives, how we've stewarded what God has entrusted to us. I like the way David Jeremiah put it. He said, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our faithful service to him will be evaluated and rewarded. With perfect knowledge, he will assess our thoughts, our motives, and our actions. And that prospect of coming judgment should motivate us to be more like Christ in our daily lives, running our spiritual race toward the heavenly reward. So let's use this uh, symbol, uh, if you will, of The judgment seat for a moment. Let's think about some more characteristics of it. The examiner at the judgment seat will be Jesus Christ Himself. In fact, He is even now examining our lives and He will bring to light the true nature of our walk with Him and our works for Him when we stand in front of Him. And At the judgment seat of Christ, each one of us will be evaluated and rewarded based on how faithfully we have served Christ in this life and what kind of steward we've been with what God has entrusted us. So when we say, don't waste your life, there has some meaning to that because these are things that, if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, are important. Uh, Questions like, were we victorious over sin? Have we lived in the holiness of God, in a progressive growth toward the likeness of his son? Were we good stewards with the resources that God entrusted to us? Were we faithful with the gospel and the opportunities the Lord put in front of us? What kind of influence were we on other believers around us? Were we an encouragement or were we a drag? And at the judgment seat of Christ, our works will be revealed for what they were. Listen to what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. I'll read 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, Will be saved, but only as through fire. So there's obviously the language here of purification, uh, the language of our works either standing or not based on the quality of them, and at the judgment seat of Christ, every believer is going to be rewarded accordingly. Now, the Bible mentions rewards numerous times. In fact, Jesus spoke of rewards several times in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Rewards in heaven are based on the goodness of God in our lives and through Christ's work, we gain an inheritance in heaven and then our lives on the earth are tested and result in the praise and the glory and the honor of God when Christ is revealed. Now I want to take just a few moments, and I've done this uh, probably in some recent months and in a particular sermon I remember focusing a little bit on the crowns in heaven but I want to go back to them particularly as we think about the judgment seat of Christ because there are five heavenly crowns that are specifically mentioned in the New Testament that will be awarded to believers. Now the Greek word translated crown um, means a badge of royalty. It means a prize in the public games or games or a symbol of honor in general. Uh, used during those ancient Greek games it, games, it would refer to a wreath or a garland of leaves that was, were placed on the victor's head uh, as the result of an athletic contest. And the word is used figuratively in the New Testament of the rewards of heaven that God has promised those who faithfully serve him. So let's go through these just quickly, and then you can go back and read more about them later. The first that's mentioned is the imperishable crown. And the reference here, I'm going to give you these references as I move through them rather quickly, is 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24 and 25. Uh, And the imperishable crown is for all who faithfully run the race. Uh, Things on this earth are subject to decay and they'll perish, but not so with the heavenly crown. Faithful endurance wins a heavenly reward. So this is why it's important that we run our race well. This is why it's important that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. This is why it's important that we measure our lives according to the character and the person of Jesus. This is why it's important that we believe the word of God and that we hold to the truth and we don't deviate because we want to be a people who live lives that are consistent and would be worthy of receiving the imperishable crown. The second is the crown of rejoicing. And this is in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. The crown of rejoicing is for those who have been faithful witnesses to the saving grace of Jesus Christ and specifically who have led other people to Jesus. Now let me just state it this way. If in your life you never lead anybody to faith in Jesus Christ, you will not receive the crown of rejoicing because that's what it's for. Now, why would we want to receive that crown? Because what it has said of our lives is that we believe Jesus is worthy, that we're not satisfied with keeping this gospel message to ourselves, that we actually believe there's a heaven and a hell and people are going one direction or the other, that we actually believe the Great Commission, that we're to make disciples of all nations, and we want other people to experience the love of God that we have experienced. And the forgiveness that comes only through the cross and the resurrection. And then third is the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. This is for those who love the appearing of Jesus and await his return. How often do you think about the return of Jesus? When you read in the scripture, are you anticipating the return of Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is going to actually return just as the book of Acts says he departed? Do you believe he's going to return? And are you living your life in such a way that you're anticipating that? Then the crown of righteousness will await you. The fourth is the crown of glory. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. This is one that is reserved for those who are the faithful under shepherds It's been referred to as the pastor's crown uh, for those who faithfully serve and shepherd the church. And then crown number five is the crown of life, Revelation 2 and verse 10. This is for all who undergo suffering and persecution and even death for the sake of Christ. Let me just tell you, the people that are most concerned about comfort and a life of ease and a spiritual life of being a consumer are not going to get anywhere close to this one. But people who are willing to do whatever it takes to faithfully serve Jesus will, in fact, receive this if they undergo that suffering and persecution. Listen, that's up to the Lord. We don't seek that. But we do seek to be faithful. And sometimes being faithful brings consequences. Now, let me ask this question and answer it. Are there more crowns than the ones mentioned in Scripture? The answer is... We do not know. So we limit ourselves to those that are identified. Just as we limit ourselves in the area of spiritual gifts, we don't call stuff spiritual gifts that's not, not listed as a spiritual gift in the Scripture because the Scripture is our authority, it's our guideline. We also don't start making up crowns that we're going to receive just because we want to make them up. There, there may be other things that the Lord wants to refer to as a crown. I don't know. That'll be up to him and his sovereign judgment. But at any rate, these are the ones that are specifically mentioned in the Bible. So whether at the judgment seat of Christ or in some other way, I do believe that believers will be given responsibility in the millennial kingdom and then also in the new heaven and the new earth. So while it's not referenced as crowns per se, I do believe that part of the judgment that we'll receive at the judgment seat of Christ will be the responsibility that we have for eternity. What are we going to do in the millennium? What are we going to do in that kingdom that Jesus sets up? What are we going to be responsible for in the new heaven and the new earth? I think that's going to be determined by our faithfulness in this life. And I think that's why the scripture repeats that, number one, to whom much is given, much is required. But it also says the first... Will be last and the last will be first and that's in part at least referencing the responsibilities we'll have and what that means I think just practically speaking is some folks that haven't been given a lot of airplay so to speak in this life that a lot of people would look at and think that they're not all that important and they're not all that prominent but yet they faithfully served King Jesus with their life. And in humility, been committed, stayed with it, dealt with hardship, loved the Lord through it, didn't get off on crazy tangents of stuff that were was unbiblical. They just stayed with it. The Lord's going to say to them, though they look like they're in the back of the line in this world, He's going to say, come on up here. You're going to be in the front. Not only are you going to be in the front, but you're going to have some responsibility because you've shown yourself to be faithful. You understand God's economy is not the same as ours. And what we value is at times the very opposite of what God would value. And we want to be sure that we're emulating Christ in that. So the judgment seat of Christ is real. It shouldn't make us fearful because our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, but it should make us have a desire in our hearts to honor him because I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I might have plenty to answer for, but I don't want to stand there just utterly embarrassed because I just wasted everything God gave to me. I want to use it well. I don't want to be selfish, prideful, greedy. All the things that we would not want to be, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. So let me say this in summary, and then i want to share something with you from A.W. Tozer. Jesus Christ will return to the earth and believers will be resurrected, rewarded, and given responsibility to continue serving God for eternity. I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus Christ will return to the earth and believers will be resurrected, rewarded, and given responsibility to continue serving God for eternity. I want to share this with you from A.W. Tozer. It's entitled, The Bliss of Heaven. Say, A.W. Tozer, the preacher of old. One of my favorites. When through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light. We shall have a thousand strings to our harps, but the sweetest may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God of God. For what right will we have to be there? Did we not by our sins take part in that unholy rebellion that rashly sought to dethrone the glorious king of creation? And did we not in times past walk according to the course of this world, according to the evil prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? And did we not all once live in the lust of our flesh? And were we not by nature the children of wrath, even as others? And then he says this, but we who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see God face to face and his name shall be on our foreheads. We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven and all through the tender mercy of God whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. All praise will go to the Lord when we finally are with him for eternity.